Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Thank you for listening to the Martinis and the Macabre podcast. This show contains graphic content and explicit language and is intended for immature adult audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Just got back from the grocery. Yeah. I got angry. I didn't just, I didn't do anything. You'd have been proud. I held my tongue. Me and my little sister are in line and we're like right where like okay, you have like uh, the aisle itself that you go in uh-huh. to where the where the belt is to put stuff on. We're right outside of there, right? And then, and a woman comes up and she's holding a bag of frozen fries, right? Yeah. And I said, "Is that all you have?" And then she looked at me and she said, "Well, this is mine." And I said, I don't want it. <laughs> I said, but is that all you're getting? And she's like, yeah, that's all I got. And I was like, well, just go ahead of me. And she's like, really? I said, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And she's like, oh, thank you. Well, little did I know, behind her back, in between her body and her arm that was closed, I thought it was a purse. No, no. It's a fucking tote bag full of about, I don't know, $50 worth of fucking groceries in there. <laughs> and then she started taking them out. And I was just like, I think, I think I'm... I think I'm I'm having a homicidal rage right now. <laughs> she fucked you. I wanted to grab her by the shoulders and be like, you fucking fibber! <laughs> fibber. And hit her in the face with a fucking Snickers bar. Wow. That's yeah. some rage. Yeah. Because you don't, you don't hit somebody with Snickers. You eat that shit. I don't eat shit. But I'm just saying sometimes I'm glad I don't, ha- I don't carry mace. I'd have fucked her up. <laughs> well, I'm glad you didn't. I'm glad you made it home without... The cops chaperoning you. I thought it was like a purse. The way she was standing. It looked like the strap of a purse. No, she just came prepared. She did. With a tote. And fucking bamboozled Billy. Thought she just wanted fries. She was thinking of the earth, Billy. Oh. She was reusing. Oh. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Well, so I guess she's just a fucking hero, huh? Yep. Welcome to Martinis and the Cobb, the podcast where we drunkenly discuss morbid murders, mysteries, and mayhem. Fitting. My name's... Living hero. My name's Erica. I'm joined by my husband and um, angry grocery shopper husband, Billy. All she had to say was like, no, no, it's okay. I've got more right here. That's all she had to fucking say. Yeah. Okay, that's that's but, all I'm saying. But she already felt threatened by you. She thought you were going to take her fries. Who the fuck wants... And they're, they're just regular... They're crinkle cut. I'm sorry. 
I'm not from third world fucking country. We do seasoned curly fries here. Okay? Mm-hmm. Every once in a while I'll go crazy and get the Arby's brand. Because you know what? I don't give a fuck. That's it. Okay. You show up at store-bought fucking crinkle fries and shit. Wow. There's, I'm, I'm sensing a lot of hostility here. It's the principal, ma'am. Oh, 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 he called me ma'am. I am your wife, sir. Sir. It's the, princi- sir. It's the principal, wife, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Moving on. All right, guys. So, wanted to let you guys know this is going to be kind of a little bit of a long one for you. We're going to try and get it all in one episode. Hopefully, we can do that for you. For this month, I wanted to do... Both of our October episodes, kind of something having to do with something kind of Halloween-y. And so for the first episode this month, I was looking for cases that maybe involved crimes that involved like witchcraft or rituals, something along those lines. And I did come across this case, which has a little bit of the witchcraft in it, but not a whole lot. But then once I started reading on the case, I was like, wow, this shit is crazy. So for this episode, we're making a trip back up to Canada, our lovely neighbors, and covering two murders that surround a woman named Cheryl Dell. I love Canadians. You guys are awesome. We love you guys. You guys are so We cool. give you shit, but we do love you guys. If, and you know what I say? <laughs> if we didn't fuck with you, it means we don't like you. Right. Exactly. I don't have anything wrong with Indonesia, but we never mention Indonesia, but you're cool. Sure. We All know. those Indonesian listeners that we have. I don't want them to have. think we don't like them, because we don't mention them. <laughs> if any of you are from Indonesia, we, like we love you. you. You're included. Hugs. <laughs> okay, so so the Cheryl Dell had these two murders that surrounded her. The first death was of her husband of 20 years, whom she'd been estranged from for almost four. What's, okay, I'm sorry, I'm, I probably sound stupid. What's estranged? Just separated? Yeah. Not legally divorced, but... They've not been together as a couple. Or, you know, if it's like a parent and a child, you don't really interact. You're estranged. You're apart from. You're not like this. You're not BFFs anymore. Okay. I got it. <laughs> well, her, her husband that she'd been estranged from died from ingesting antifreeze-laced wine. And his death was initially ruled a suicide. And the second death was her female lover two years later who was set to take the stand in Cheryl's murder trial for her husband. You know, have you seen antifreeze in a glass? No. Looks good. Why have you seen it in a glass? What was it doing in a glass, Billy? I had dark thoughts this one time. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) No, but I've seen it like, you know, like I go and pour some in the radiator. Some of it just... It's pretty. It's pretty color. Some of it spills on the ground. Like, oh man, that looks like... Part of it looks like the Predator's blood, but the other part of it kind of looks kind of tasty like a... Ecto cooler. Remember that? Remember those from like the early nineties? No, not at all. High C Ecto cooler. Guys, back me up. Ecto cooler. I think they're called Ecto cooler. It's a uh, Ghostbusters brand. Slimer. Slimer had his own like line of drinks, and they were like bright green high sure. C boxes sure. with the straw. Uh huh. I'm not. I didn't fucking dream it. I'm telling you. Never said you did. Oh my. <laughs> okay, so this so this female lover of hers ended up dying in her apartment. As a result of a very suspicious fire. And there's a lot of backstory here, guys. I'm, I'm going to be going through a lot, but it's it's crazy when you hear all of it together. And there's lots of players in this game. So to kind of keep things somewhat linear and simplified for you guys, I'm going to start at the beginning and intersperse some court testimony kind of throughout. Are you kind of pulp fictioning this? 
Not really, but I am going to allude to stuff that happens in the future in the trial when I'm talking about stuff that we're talking about, like, in their present time. Oh, okay. So it'll seem like it's jumping uh, jumping around, but you kind of have to bring that court testimony in to kind of understand what was happening at the time that it happened. And there's places in here that I may mispronounce, so I'm sure one of you lovely Canadians can totally correct me if I don't pronounce some places right. My apologies in advance for that. Okay, so Cheryl Margaret Scott met John Scott Dell, who went by Scott. Crazy, right? Cheryl met Scott. Let's just say that. Cheryl met Scott in Wilberforce, Ontario in 1970 when they were teenagers. Scott was about 18 and Cheryl was about 15. Ew. What ew? She's too young. Still young. Yeah, but they're still teenagers. Even know. though you're legally an adult, I mean, they're still teenagers. Ew. <laughs> well, they met in Wilber- Wilberforce, which is about 120 kilometers or about 75 miles southwest of Pembroke, which is where Cheryl's family lived. Scott's family had a cottage there. But they lived here in the U.S. and Connecticut. Scott, a U.S. citizen that hadn't registered for Vietnam War service and wasn't exactly keen on being deployed, decided to move to the family cottage in Canada to avoid the draft. The two met at a party when he lit a cigarette for her. Damn, that's what did it, huh? Yep. Man. Fifteen and already smoking. Back then, it didn't take much. <laughs> he would uh, say years later that it was fate and that he was put on this earth to take care of her. And lighter cigarettes. And and you have to kind of understand this mentality of both of them. She was constantly wanting to be taken care of and he felt like he had to be the caretaker. Well, yeah, when she's 15. <laughs> yeah. It's a three-year difference, you know, Billy. My God. I mean, you kind of do feel like the dad. Shut up. You know, it, back then, I bet you, like, there's so much courtship that happens and, you know, writing letters to each other and whatnot. And, oh, I miss you. I miss you, too. Cut to now. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. Let me eat that butt. And next thing you know, you guys are fucking dating. It's weird. That That's what happens before you start dating me, is eating that butt? Let me eat that butt. Oh, okay. Uh, that wasn't part of our courtship, guys, just so you, you know. Just want to get in that leather Cheerio. Oh, you're gross. You're so, so gross. It's so disgusting. Back then, if, though, if you're into it, that's cool. I'm not. Whatever. So Scott's early life was generally kind of normal. He was intelligent. Schoolwork came easy to him. But by his own admittance, he had been a lazy student. He ended up dropping out in the 12th grade. His mother, Myra, later described him as a long-haired Nixon hater. I like that name. Myra? It's a pretty name. Or long-haired Nixon hater. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Cheryl's early life was definitely more troubled. She would later tell a psychiatrist that she was repeatedly molested by her paternal grandfather at the age of four, but suppressed the memories for years. She lived with her maternal grandmother from age seven to nine because she was, quote, a troublemaker and needed extra attention, end quote. She got spinal meningitis when she was 12 and spent 10 months in the hospital. According to her father, Cheryl had a quote-unquote split personality after the illness, but I couldn't find anything in the sources that stated exactly why he felt that way. You know, I wonder. Glasses on. Yeah, clocking in. (laughs) You know, I read a a little story about this. uh, It was like this article about family secrets, you know, and every paragraph was somebody else. They Mm -hmm. submitted it, I think, to Reddit or something like that. And one of them was, um, he knew 
his mother had been sexually molested by her grandfather and beaten by her own mother, which is the grandfather's daughter. Mm -hmm. And she developed like 40 different personalities. I wonder if that's where split personality came from, but her having meningitis kind of made it come out. I think maybe the meningitis scrambled her brain cells or something. Like that's always been there. And then the spinal meningitis did something to the brain and the spinal meningitis basically opened the door and then the personality got out and now you, it's like present. Yeah, but we've, we talked about this when we did our crossover with Kate too, is like how valid really is the quote unquote split personality diagnosis. It's now called dissociative identity disorder. Oh. And I mean... There's really no clear-cut evidence that it even exists, but that's what he described it as. So she probably just had some severe mood swings or changes in her attitude. She was also in a car accident that year when she was 12 years old, which left her with neck and back problems. And by 13, Cheryl was using drugs. So her family uprooted from Toronto, moving several times in an attempt to keep her away from bad influences. What? What are you giggling at? I'm just picturing it. She had the spinal meningitis, car accident. She got fucked up really bad. Cut to a party. She's trying to light a cigarette, but she can't because she's wearing that thing with the bars coming up and the halo around there. (laughs) She can't quite get the cigarette, and that's what did it. You're awful. (laughs) Let me light that for you. Who said that? It's like, you need to turn your body and face me. (laughs) This is when she was 12. She still had a couple years to go before she met Scott. (laughs) so the family like i said they ended up moving to try and keep her away from the bad influences you know the the doing drugs and getting into trouble and the family ended up in wilberforce and cheryl dropped out of school in the 11th grade in april of 1970 cheryl after tripping for three days on speed and acid was admitted to peterborough civic hospital no an assessment done during the hospitalization listed her as quote an immature, manipulative, and histrionic young lady who is experiencing severe emotional problems, end quote. So she was a little fucked up in the head. Despite this, Scott fell head over heels, and he and Cheryl were dating by the fall of that year. They married on New Year's Eve in 1971 when he was 20 and she was 17. That's a, that's, that's a little better. That's better? Yeah. 15 and 18 is worse than 20 and 17? To me, yeah. Okay. That hits the ears better. Maybe to you. Maybe, maybe. I think it's a little bit better here in the 15, 18, because they're still both teenagers at that time. When you start hitting 20 and your significant other is still in their teens, that's a little... I don't know. Me personally, it's like, okay, you know, you're 18, you're 15. I'm trying to light a cigarette that you couldn't fucking buy yourself because the law and your age... You don't know what the laws were in 1970 in Canada. I don't. You're right. Yeah, that's right. Read a book, Billy. God. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, in February, Cheryl overdosed on 75 aspirin. But she seemed different to the whole situation, laughing and joking about it. Thought it was no big deal. Scott stayed by her side until the spring of 1975 when Cheryl left him. She just fucking took off to Toronto and became a stripper, living the dream. Life is a highway, and she's going to ride it all night long. Yep. And she did. She didn't return until early in 1976, and she was pregnant. She fell off her pole. (laughs) Remember Grandpa? Yeah. That was so great. (laughs) 
Go ahead and tell them about okay. that. Okay. Grandpa saw at an intersection where we used to have a strip club. It's a Burger King now. But saw a stripper come out. Or I, we don't know if it was. Not the same building. They tore down the strip club yeah, and yeah, rebuilt yeah. Yeah, they didn't, Burger King, just so you know that. They didn't gut the fucking place. <laughs> but um, we don't know if, if it was a stripper or what. But she she it was during the day. And she left the building on crutches and a leg and a cast. And then, yeah, Grandpa was like, hey, she must have fell off her pole. And <laughs> to this day. That never gets old. Grandpa's Grandpa's dead and gone Aww. and we miss him. But uh, I miss your Grandpa. That was a fucking hoot. <laughs> that And when he saw that car. The Sunbird L.E. The sun. The, yeah, he was like, look at, look at that. That's one of their sunbirdles. It's <laughs> like. It sure is, Grandpa. Yep. It's a sunbirdle. God bless you. He was a good guy. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. So, she returned in 1976, and she was pregnant. Obviously, not by Scott. But Scott, blinded by love, took her back and accepted the role of father to Cheryl's daughter. Okay. Which is pretty upstanding, during, I have to say. During this time, when somebody clearly fell in love with a stripper... No, he was already in love and married to her, and she ran off to be a stripper. Oh, I'm saying she got knocked up. Somebody was in love with her for at least three minutes and 30 seconds. If you want to call it that. But. If sex is being in love. It is when we do it. Well, that's because we're already in love and we just happen to be having sex at the time. I think you're tops. Hey. Now, they're estranged. Am I right? Who? Her and who she got knocked up Scott. by? Her and Scott. Yeah, when she took off, they yep, were estranged. I'm right. That's, that's what estranged yes. is. Got it. Go ahead. Yep, she took off to live the dream of being a Canadian stripper. I'm learning. <laughs> so, so yeah, he took on the role of being this father figure to this daughter that obviously wasn't his. That's good of him to do. And and he would be the only father that the daughter actually knew until her late teens. Good for him. That's nice. Scott's best friend Elsa testified at trial, quote, he would do anything for her. When Cheryl would say things to him that would hurt him, or when she tried to manipulate him into doing things for her... He knew that she was doing it. He was aware she was doing it. And he would say, she can't help it. It's just the way she is. End quote. So that tells you right there. He he knew that she had some issues and he felt that it was his duty to stand by her no matter what and take care of her. Despite it, what it cost him emotionally. I don't like to throw around the word whipped. He was whipped by his own choosing, though. Yeah, he chose this and I don't know. But from, from all the research I gathered, he was a really a good guy. I'm sure he was. I'm sure. I mean, he took in another person's kid as his own. To me, that's great. Yeah. That's a great thing to do. From 1976 until the late 80s, Scott worked at General Motors in Oshawa. I probably am saying that wrong, but that's what I'm going to call it. I looked at it as Oshawa. Maybe. Mm. Canadians, let us know. <laughs> at Cheryl's urging, the family moved to Peterborough. They operated a group home for special needs children out of their home, caring for mentally handicapped children. They also cared for a baby girl that they later adopted in 1987. And in 1989, they moved to a log farmhouse a few kilometers outside of the village of Killaloe, and they quickly settled into an alternative rural lifestyle, continuing to operate a group home. They enrolled their daughter in Killaloe Alternative School. And by alternative, I mean a two-room schoolhouse for about a dozen students. About as alternative as you can get as far as schools go. Yeah. At least in the modern world. They participated in a local trading cooperative that was based on bartering and on credits, which were named Killaloonies, and basically traded goods and services. 
That's like they're fucking living in the Old West or something. Yeah. (laughs) Now, in November of 1989, Cheryl gave birth to a son who was the only biological child of Scott's because she had the one she had gotten pregnant when she was in Toronto and then they adopted a girl and then they had a son together. And the boy was born at home with a midwife attending. And you got to remember, they got married in like 71 and this is 89. So they'd gone all this time without actually having a child of their own until this time. What if they which never, I thought was kind of weird. What if they never had sex? I don't know. At this point, I don't know. But it, it kind of made me wonder, and I don't want to speak bad in this way without it <clears throat> being the truth. But just a thought popped to my head is what if that wasn't his kid? What if maybe he couldn't have kids and that's why they went? 18 years without having one, and then all of a sudden she gets pregnant. Maybe it wasn't his. Maybe. I mean, I don't know if they've had DNA tests and stuff done at this point, but that was just a thought that popped into my head, but I don't want to say that that's the truth because I definitely don't know if that's the truth or not. But I do 100% believe you that she gave birth at home. Yeah, sounds about right. Sounds like they're out in the sticks. You said they live in a cabin. A dozen students in a fucking alternative school, if that's what you want to call it. You said they live in a cabin? In a cabin. I bet they had a birthing in a shed. Trading and bartering goods and credits and yeah. I 100% believe all of this now. Yeah. <laughs> in December of 1991, Cheryl and Scott had their 20 year anniversary. And their baby died of the consumption. No, this was 91. <laughs> Tuberculosis. <laughs> in February of the next year, 1992, Cheryl joined an incest survivors group in nearby Barry's Bay. And everybody looked at Scott weird. <laughs> Like, what, me? Yeah. I'm not the guy. There she met Gay Doherty, a woman six years older than her. Gay was a U.S. citizen that had moved from New York to Pembroke when she was 18. She worked for the Roman Catholic Church from 1971 to 1985, vowing celibacy and obedience, which is similar to a nun's vows, but she wasn't actually a nun. She decided in 1985 that she needed to, quote-unquote, experience life, And boy, did she, because she became Cheryl's first lesbian lover. (laughs) Wait. (laughs) Gay's gay? Gay ended up being gay after working for the Catholic Church for, what, 14 years? Wow. Vowing celibacy and obedience and decided she was going to go live life. And she definitely had some experiences. She grabbed life by the horns. (laughs) After a number of trysts, they ran away on July 8th in 1992. They took the Dells' family van and went to Toronto for a week, stranding Scott and their three children, as well as two foster children that they were caring for. I bet you he didn't even care. Well, when they got back, Cheryl wanted Gay to move in, and Scott, rightfully so, refused. He was like, nuh-uh. 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 Ain't gonna happen. I don't blame him. I bet you he'd be like, you know what? I've put up with a lot of shit for decades now, and I'm fucking tired of it. Mm-hmm. He put his foot down about that. Gay later testified that Scott gave her a warning, quote, he told me you have no idea what you're getting into, end quote. His mother later stated, quote, I basically think that she, which she meant Cheryl, probably needed help and that he wasn't able to provide for her. And he thought that maybe she was looking for something, end quote. So he felt that her running off on him to have a lesbian love affair in Toronto for a week was just, well, she just needed some help. I don't know if that was him trying to rationalize in his head to make it okay, or if he really felt that, but yeah. You know, at this point, I'm sitting here thinking like, 
Scott's a good guy. Scott's really stepping up to the plate and he's being responsible and he is, you know, head over heels in love. And now I'm just like, God, Scott, what the fuck is wrong with you? Come on already. Yeah, but that's how in love with her he was. I guess. Just a week after returning from her Toronto vacay, Cheryl was living with Gay, applying through the courts to try to get custody of the children and possession of the Dell home. This was when shit really went south. In an affidavit from July 23rd, 1992, Cheryl falsely swore that she had a university degree in psychology and that the Dell farm had been bought with money she had inherited from her grandmother. Three days later, she alleged that Scott had assaulted her on July 18th. Scott was charged, but the allegation was declared groundless and the charge was withdrawn. Just two days after that, she told Pembroke authorities that Scott had severely assaulted a developmentally delayed 13-year-old boy, leaving the kid with a bloody nose and swollen lip. The allegation was debunked a week later, but the Dell Foster home was ordered to close out of caution because of Cheryl's claims. So Scott, without any income from fostering children and this group home, then had to go on family benefits. The court granted an interim settlement into the Dell's matrimonial dispute on July 30th. Scott was ordered to move. He returned to his family's cottage in Wilberforce while the allegations were investigated further. Cheryl got to live in the farmhouse with the children, but Cheryl wasn't done yet. She made more allegations in September to child welfare officials. She claimed Scott had been rough with their oldest daughter and sexually inappropriate with the other. Good gravy! Authorities eventually weeded out the truth and found that Cheryl had been coaching her younger daughter to lie against Scott. Now, she's been married to this guy for 20 years, and she's going to accuse him of molesting his children. You know, at this point, I, I would say to Cheryl, you know what? You got the house. He left. You win. Like, what? Why? It's like you're kicking a guy when he's down. And he didn't even do anything in the first place. Oh, well, and you're well, still going after well, just him. Just wait. She 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 does not back down at all. It's not backing down. Backing down is like standing up for yourself. You know, she's attacking. And he didn't do anything. She's just attacking him over and over again. Yeah. And it doesn't stop. She's kind of a dick. She kind of is. <laughs> Very true. So yeah, so they found out that Cheryl had been coaching her daughter. The daughter lied. And the girl later testified at trial, quote, it made me feel bad because I knew it wasn't true, end quote. Nonetheless, Cheryl dug in her heels and continued to make claims against Scott. Now, following months of baseless allegations, Cheryl filed for divorce in March of 1993, finally. I don't know why she couldn't have just done that from the beginning. And she was asking for custody of the three children, $4,900 a month in child support, and exclusive possession of their home. God damn. How in the hell is a man with no income... Going to be able to afford $4,900 a month. I mean, even with a job. I mean, ha- $4,900 a month. That's fucking insane. That's ridiculous. Because it'd be like, we're arresting you for not paying child support. Child support's $4,900 a month. How am I supposed to fucking do that? Yeah. You know? That, that's it's, an insane amount of child lose, support. That's lose-lose. And the, I mean, back then, they were probably a little, a little more lenient. But nowadays, though, if you have, at least here in Indiana, maybe it's a state-by-state thing, but if you're behind on child support, they'll put a warrant out. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I can't imagine if we got divorced and you wanted like $10,000 a month of child support and then I get arrested for not paying a, a, a ridiculous fucking amount that is unrealistic to begin with. I mean, even $1,000 a month nowadays is on the high end. You know, if unless you're like a very wealthy person or a millionaire. Yeah. I mean, that that's just an 
a ridiculous amount of money. She alleged in her petition that Scott had cheated on her in addition to abusing their two daughters. So now not only has he beat her up, beat up some mentally disabled child, and sexually assaulted her two daughters, but now he's also cheated on her. She just keeps adding on to the the allegations. Wouldn't the Canadian government or the local government or authorities at this point just be like, Cheryl, stop. We're not believing any of this. This is literally the 20th time you've been in here. Well, we're running low on paper and pens. Come on, man. (laughs) Well, let me continue. In response, Scott filed a counter petition asking for custody, only $900 a month in child support, the farm, and for the court to order Cheryl to undergo a psychiatric examination. Probably way overdue. That sounds fair. (laughs) Because, I mean, because even in that claim, he's still looking out for her, you know, where he's like, I want this. This is fair. This is my farm. This is fair. Everything I'm asking for is fair. And you know what? At the end of the day, regardless of what she has said about me, regardless of how she's attacked me on this stuff, I still want the best for her. She needs a psychiatric evaluation mm-hmm. and she probably needs to be institutionalized. He was being reasonable. That's very fair. Yeah. Well, Cheryl's application was denied in mid-May of 1993. The judge cited her, quote, appalling lack of consideration and concern for the interest of the infants in the prosecution of her design to destroy the respondent's reputation by repetitive and unfounded allegations of sexual impropriety to mask or mitigate her own inadequacies. Nice. He continued, There is no question that the various agencies and institutions involved have been besieged by unnecessary and excessive unwarranted complaints. Somebody bought him. A word a day calendar for Christmas. And he he fucking took advantage of that shit. Or he's a fucking judge and he's just really smart. He's good. That was good. I could have said it better myself. Literally. I don't know if I could do that. Yeah. So in layman's terms, he told her to get the fuck out of the farmhouse and then ordered shared custody of the children. He was like, um, fuck you. Get the fuck out. You guys are going to share the kids. Crazy bitch. Not in so many terms, but that's kind of what he was getting at. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Read between the lines. (laughs) Well, this didn't seem to phase Cheryl who then fled with the children to Ottawa that same day. She asked the Ottawa Carleton's Children's Aid Society to take the children and investigate, quote-unquote, past abuse. Child protection officials examined the children over the next two weeks, but only found them to be relaxed and happy. No signs of abuse. In the meantime, Scott discussed his concerns about his wife's mental health with authorities. He began crying during one interview, claiming Cheryl had these quote-unquote periods before, but things always returned to normal in time. He still thought things would just fall back into place, and he was very, very wrong. Gay recounted at trial that Cheryl was performing bizarre rituals on a homemade doll around this time. Quote, She went and purchased some kind of waxy material and did this voodoo thing, made it look like Scott, and put ropes and ribbons and pins in it said certain things over it, and then I think she buried it, end quote. And after three months of dealing with Cheryl's dramatic life, Gay wanted to end the relationship. Quote, I desperately wanted out. I felt like my life was being totally, completely consumed by all of her needs. She seemed like a victim. She seemed as if she needed somebody to be a caregiver. When Gay broke the news to Cheryl that she was leaving, Cheryl responded by tearing up a gift of poetry Gay had written for her and overdosing on antidepressants. Cheryl was once again treated in hospital and released. So that makes, what, her third time in hospital for overdosing on shit? Yeah. Gay ended up staying with her for a few more months, but she claimed it was only because of her closeness to the children. Quote, they were important to me. They were the only reason I remained in that relationship, end quote. 
The family court ended up ordering a psychiatric report on the family in January of 1994, and it showed that out of the three adults, Cheryl, Scott, and Gay, that Gay actually had the best interaction with the kids, so it might have been good that she stuck around at least a little longer. The same report slammed Cheryl, calling her, quote, a rather immature, narcissistic, self-indulgent person. She has an inordinate need for affection and finds it difficult to satisfy this. Other individuals would be expected to ignore their own feelings or needs in favor of her wishes. She would frequently be viewed by others as conceited, spoiled, or disdainful, end quote. Dr. David McLean wrote that Cheryl was, quote, inclined to believe she is above the conventions or ethics of society and acts accordingly without considering the consequences of her actions. Although she is likely to be rather gregarious and outgoing on first impression, she does not relate very well to other people. She tends to be guarded and harbor chronic feelings of bitterness and resentment. She is highly sensitive to criticism and, to avoid rejection, becomes adept in manipulating people. Cheryl suffers from some long-standing personality difficulties marked by traits of immaturity, grandiosity, manipulativeness, and self-centeredness, end quote. Maybe I just have a bad vocabulary. <laughs> yeah, they had a lot of words to describe her, a lot of adjectives there. Yeah, I'd have been like, can you just, can you describe Cheryl? I'd be like, this motherfucker here. <laughs> so maybe, maybe, maybe I'm the problem. So this bitch. <laughs> <laughs> you sitting down, dude? Holy shit. <laughs> Let me tell you something. In the spring of 1994, Scott got a sore throat that would not go away, and a growth appeared on the side of his neck. Uh-oh. His family physician, Dr. Bruce Harris, referred him to the Ottawa Cancer Clinic. Scott and his best friend, Elsa Steenberg, went to his appointment at the clinic together. He was diagnosed with cancer of the tongue and throat, and his prognosis was poor. The two stopped for a hike on the way home. Quote, we thought it would be sort of nice thing to do at the end of such a sad day, Elsa testified. Scott talked about his treatment options and wondered what this diagnosis might mean for his children. Quote, there was a possibility that he might lose his tongue, and of course, in doing that, he couldn't talk or read stories to his children, Elsa said. So he talked about one option, to read stories beforehand and tape them so the children would hear his voice, end quote. Aww. Yeah. Reminds me of that movie, <clears throat> My Life. Don't watch it, guys. It's the saddest <laughs> fucking movie you'll ever fucking see. And I've never watched it because Billy always tells me that. <laughs> yeah, if you ever watch it, I'm going to go in the other room and play video games or something. <laughs> well, I'll know it. I'll know it. Like, if I come home and I see Michael Keaton and Nicole Kidman on screen, I'll be like, oh, hell no. And I'm just going to go in the bathroom, have a good cry, and then come in here. Just thinking about it? Yeah, and play Dead Space or something. <laughs> Send you text. Is it over? I can't come out. <laughs> Numerous witnesses, including Elsa and Scott's doctors and relatives, would later testify at trial that Scott was determined to live, mostly so his children wouldn't be left without a father. Quote, I noted that he was really committed to surviving this illness for his children's sake, and that really struck me, said Dr. Harris. I was really impressed by his dedication and his commitment to getting better so he could be there for his children, end quote. These witness accounts would completely contradict the defense's assertion that Scott had committed suicide. Scott had radiation treatments almost every other day, and his best friend Elsa would accompany him. She said Scott didn't complain, despite losing his taste buds, salivary glands, and at least 50 pounds. Yeesh. He also had to have all of his teeth fixed because the radiation destroyed the enamel. Cheryl later told police that Scott's cancer treatment had been quote-unquote torture, but out of all of the people that helped him during that time, Cheryl was not one of them. Scott underwent surgery shortly before the children returned to school that year, 
Elsa stated he was anxious to get out of the hospital so he could accompany his son to his first day of kindergarten. He stayed in good spirits, returning for checkups and taking care of himself following the surgery, and he told Elsa that life was a gift. And he even wrote the same sentiment shortly before his death, saying, quote, We forget all the time that our life is a gift and that it has been given to us to enjoy, not to waste. End quote. By January of 1995, Scott's cancer was in remission and he was declared cancer-free. Yay! During this time, Gay had finally separated from Cheryl in the summer of 1994. Yay! <laughs> but the two stayed in touch. Uh. Gay learned Scott had been diagnosed with cancer, which appeared to please Cheryl. Oh, I bet Cheryl fucking loved it. Quote, she didn't seem to be upset by it, Gay testified. It felt like an answer to a prayer. The guy would die. She would get what she wanted. End and quote. right after he was diagnosed gay, he kicked in the door of this house and he hit me with a bag of nickels. Wow. And I'm calling the cops. Sounds about right. Sounds about what she would do. Yeah. <laughs> he said he would fill up a tube sock with locks and keys and beat me until every lock unlocked. It's called a lock and a sock. Lock, he, he lock and socked me. We got trained to defend ourselves against lock and socks I'm, at I'm, work. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> For your nursing it's job. One of the most commonly made weapons in a prison is a lock and a sock. <laughs> As a nurse, you, you know how to. Yep. Yeah, okay. <laughs> great. That's a great job you have, honey. <laughs> well, Gay ended up leaving Canada in April of 1995 and returning to the States to care for her ailing father in Texas. When she left, her and Scott were actually on good terms, despite her being the other woman. The two had developed a friendship, even though Cheryl had filled Gay's head with horror stories about the man. She later testified, quote, I went with him one day when he took them ice skating and he volunteered. Even though he was sick, he volunteered to lace up everybody's little ice skates. And I just saw the way he related to the children and I started thinking, my God, this guy is a nice guy, end quote. By the next spring, Cheryl was dating another woman by the name of Nancy Fillmore. Nancy was a 37-year-old woman from Ottawa. One source claimed that she was the children's nanny but most say she had placed an RSVP alternative lifestyle ad in The Citizen looking for a girlfriend. The Citizen is like their newspaper? Yeah, the Ottawa Citizen. Okay. Um, which actually, a lot of the information I got from this came from an article from the Ottawa Citizen. And I don't remember the title of it right off the top of my head. But if you search Cheryl Dell, and it's spelled weird. It's C-H-E-R-R-Y, like cherry, and then L-L-E. Would it be called... How Sex, Lies, and Antifreeze Convicted the, quote, Angel of Death, Cheryl Bell? That would be it. It's from the Ottawa Citizen. Is this it? Yeah. I got quite a bit of information from that. Okay. Um, I'm a good researcher as well. <laughs> so, yeah. So, most sources say that she put in an ad looking for a girlfriend in that newspaper. And Cheryl's response was the only one that she actually answered. She later claimed it was, quote, unquote, destiny. They wrote letters and spoke on the phone. Nancy described Cheryl's voice as hypnotic and said she thought Cheryl was, quote, sweet and gentle, end quote. The two met a few times, and Nancy said she got along great with the kids. Soon they were sleeping together, and Nancy was visiting Cheryl most weekends. Cheryl was renting a Boland Street home in Killaloo that summer, but she was planning to move. On June 16th, a real estate agent showed Cheryl a house, and she voiced interest in buying it. She went on to tell the agent that her husband was dying of cancer, and she would be the beneficiary of his estate. And this is in the summer of 1995, many months after Scott was told the cancer was in remission. But she was telling people that he was going to die and she was going to inherit everything. So just keep that in mind. On July 21st, Cheryl applied for a mortgage to purchase the house. 
and told a National Trust employee that Scott was very ill with cancer and that the Dell Farm would go to her when he died. Foreshadowing much? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that summer, Cheryl was spending most days with the couple in Killaloe, her friends Kim and Randy not. Cheryl was eating most meals there, sometimes with the kids, and they all stayed overnight several times as well. When they stayed, Mrs. Knott noticed that Cheryl regularly gave her children cold medicine and Graval, which is a motion sickness medication, also known as Dramamine. And she would give them this to make them sleep. Mrs. Knott later testified, quote, It was common for Cheryl to even say, I have to give this to them so they'll go to sleep. They slept so much that they wouldn't wake. <laughs> they would wet their beds every night. Every night. Because they had... It's time for your Nyquiltinis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come get dosier sleeping medicine. Everybody line up. You know what time it is. Is it Robitussin Colada time? You got it, honey. <laughs> Come on in here. If you like falling down and pissing in your bed. All right. Honey, drink it. Drink it. <laughs> All of it. Every bit. Cheryl and the kids would return to her Bowling Street home on the weekends to welcome Nancy. Miss Knott would come with them to clean the house, dust, mop, straighten things up. All while Cheryl just looked on. Didn't lift a finger. Pretty fucked up. Quote, Cheryl always seemed very sickly, Mrs. Knott testified. She told me of a bone structural problem she had in her face. She suffered from headaches and body pains and just always something wrong. Very weak, very sickly, asthma. She was a very sickly woman, or appeared to be a very sickly woman. Well, once you hit your 30s, you just take that demeanor. (laughs) Yeah, that's just life. Yeah. Cheryl told Mrs. Knott that she wanted to inherit Scott's farmhouse and turn it into a, A, home for unwed mothers, or B, a bed and breakfast. You know, two completely fucking different things. (laughs) How how are your options? I want to make it a home for unwed mothers, or I'll make it a bed and breakfast, you know. I tell you what, honey, first one that comes through that door, if they're tired from a long trip, bed and breakfast. If she's crying and say she, quote unquote, fell downstairs, then it's going to be an (laughs) unwed mother. (laughs) Oh, man. Whenever I think of bed and breakfast, or I hear just the word bed and breakfast, Mm -hmm. you know what I think of? Groundhog Day. Yeah. Yeah. I love Groundhog Day. Phil? Oh God, this is such a such a good, well-rounded movie. And I'm just saying this to you as just have, us having a conversation. I know we have to get back to this podcast, but I really enjoy that movie. Like, like you know how like AMC shows Shawshank every other day, mm-hmm. but when you turn it on and Shawshank's on, you don't change. You stay there and you're like, well, it's Shawshank. I have you to have to watch, I have to watch it's, this. It's ingrained in my DNA. It's one of the best movies ever fucking made. I'm like that with Groundhog. With Groundhog Day, I'm like, oh my god, this is it. Even though it's the same thing over and over and yeah. over again. It's funny, like how one of my favorite parts was like when he was at the gas station, and I was like, oh, I know the lines are down because of the snow. But do you have a line for celebrities or an emergency? I'm both. I'm a celebrity in an emergency. Okay, what about the satellites? Is it snowing in space? <laughs> and then you got hit in the head with a shovel. Okay, let's get... I know. I'm sorry. I really want to watch Groundhog Day now. Well, when we get done, hon, you can go find Groundhog Day on Hulu or some shit. I can't. I gotta play Spider-Man. I have to. Oh, yeah. Your boy toy. I love him. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm addicted to that game. You guys don't know this, but we had a long discussion about Billy's intimate thoughts about Spider-Man <laughs> before we recorded. <laughs> Web sling all over this. Game. Oh, shut up, <laughs> ew! I just recently bought that game and I cannot quit playing it. It is so fun. <laughs> it's so gross. Think it's a that. fun game. Fuck off. I believe you. All right, so home for un- unwed mothers or a bed and breakfast, which I don't know. Why those two things popped into her head, but that's what she wanted to do. I'm not going to lie. Both of them on their own are good ideas. But that or that, They're it's like really, <laughs> two different ends of the spectrum. Two really opposite things, but at the same time, it's like both could be, either one would be good. Who am I to say? <laughs> uh, so, Mrs. Not testified that Cheryl also made negative comments about Scott. Oftentimes saying, quote, I wish his cancer would hurry up and kill him, end quote. But in person or on the phone, Cheryl was all sweetness to Scott, telling him, oh, Scott, everything is going to be okay. We'll work this out, yada, yada, yada. Mrs. Knott also testified that when Cheryl found out about Scott's cancer being in remission, she was livid. She said Cheryl's fists were clenched and she was fuming as she asked, do you know where I can hire a hitman? I have to get rid of this guy. He's got to die. What did he do that was so bad? Nothing. Not a damn thing. Except stayed by her side. Nothing. You know what? This is just my opinion, and I'm putting it on the fucking airwaves. Nice guys always finish last. She wanted what she wanted on her terms. And because she couldn't have it, she just made up a whole shitstorm of stuff about him. It just doesn't pay to be nice anymore. (laughs) Well, that September, Cheryl fell off a skateboard outside the public school in Killaloo. What was she doing on a skateboard, you might ask? I don't fucking know, but she um, fell the fuck off of it. Not li- sweet karma. Living her life. <laughs> doing she was living the dream because do- she couldn't be a stripper anymore. She's a little too old for that. So. Doing some sick tricks. Come on, man. <laughs> she wanted to catch some sweet air. Fuck yeah. Check out this Ollie. <laughs> ah! Well, Nancy called Mrs. Knott and she rushed over to find Cheryl on the ground. Cheryl ended up in the hospital for almost two weeks, and I believe it was for a broken leg, though I didn't have any sources that specifically said that. And from that day on, she hated Tony Scott. <laughs> the kids stayed with Mrs. Knott during the hospitalization, and Cheryl instructed her that if Scott called, she was to deny him access to the kids. <laughs> Quote, she claimed he was an abusive father. She hated him, Mrs. Knott said. But Cheryl's allegations made no sense. She said the kids were always ecstatic to see him when he visited. Quote, He didn't have a chance to get to the front door because the kids would be on him like glue as he was getting out of the truck, end quote. Cheryl left the hospital with her leg in a cast and stayed with the knots for over a month while she was healing. She fell off her pole. (laughs) It'd be weird if the kids were like, they told her, uh, what, Miss Knot? Mm -hmm. Like if one of the kids was like, look, okay, seriously, I didn't even know she knew skateboards existed. (laughs) I've never seen her around one. And I've never seen her yell at the crazy kids that are doing crazy tricks outside the school. I did not even know she knew this was. I, I I'm that's pretty what makes sure. it even more weird. Is why was she in front of the school on I a skateboard? Know. I don't know. One of the kids are like, I'm pretty sure she can't spell skateboard. I don't know how the hell she got this. She dropped down in the fucking eleventh grade. You know what? I bet she. I bet that was the first time she saw Back to the Future, and she wanted to get on a skateboard and grab hold of the back of a Jeep, and she just wrecked her shit really bad because this isn't a movie; it's life, and you probably shouldn't do these things. I just see her at Walmart standing in front of a skateboard, be like, "You know what? I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go to the school," and she didn't say it to herself, like out loud. Mm-hmm. 
And I was like, ma'am, you need help? I need help getting this off the shelf so I could do some sick tricks. <laughs> okay. At least she believed in herself. <laughs> yeah, she believed in herself all the way up until she saw the skateboard fly that way and she wasn't on it. <laughs> her back was facing the ground and she was in midair. I bet all her I immediately regret what I did. All her confidence just went out of, her confidence went with the skateboard. Yeah. <laughs> way the fuck over there. Gravity. God's bullet. <laughs> So, so, yeah, she stayed with the knots for, like, over a month, basically, so they could take care of her and heal her. And in October, Cheryl was still talking about Scott as if he was on death's doorstep. Now, he'd been declared cancer-free in, like, the beginning of the year in, like, January. And it was October, and she's still saying, nope, he's gonna die. Nope, mark my words, he's gonna die. She's so, very optimistic about such a grim thing. Exactly. Gay said that Cheryl called her in Texas and told her she was planning to buy a house and sell Scott's farmhouse, once again mentioning that she would inherit it when he died. You know, if she was that confident about landing that sick rail slide with the skateboard <laughs> that she was about Scott dying, she'd be a fucking pro skater by now. We'd see her and she'd be the oldest woman in the X Games. And yet, we don't see her because she's in prison. Yeah. And she That's to come. <laughs> and she's not good at skateboarding. Well, Gay uh, said, quote, she fully expected he would die. So she she was preparing. That same month, Cheryl's cat died suspiciously. Cheryl called the Knots one day and said that her cat Asia was behaving strangely on her lawn. Mr. Knot went to Cheryl's and found the cat convulsing. Cheryl asked him to take Asia to a vet in Pembroke, and the vet found that Asia had most likely been poisoned with antifreeze. I'm reading this as you're reading it, and when it said the cat died suspiciously, I automatically thought she tested out fucking antifreeze to see what would fucking happen. Yep. <laughs> That's where my mind went. And we're right. The cat had to be put down, and Cheryl asked Mr. Not to pay for it on his Visa card, because she wasn't going to pay for it, obviously. She was so certain about it. She doesn't even say death anymore or dead when she refers to it. She refers to it as Scott. Like, hey, maybe you should Scott him. <laughs> <laughs> That's a new verb. Scott him up. <laughs> Mr. Not said that when he told Cheryl about the cat, she was emotionless. Quote, she just wanted to know exactly how it had died, end quote. <laughs> we had to have it put down. Oh, so liver or uh, stomach? What What was the, what was, is he in there? Because I could take notes about it. <laughs> you didn't record this, did you? Because that would be great if you did. Can well, I grab hold of the bumper on your way home? Because I got my skateboard. <laughs> <laughs> the skateboard thing really is throwing me for a fucking I know, lot. me too. I was like, What? That's what so, is she doing on a fucking skateboard in front of the school? It's so fucking weird. You know, it'd be like we're hanging out, you know, and it'd be like, yeah, I like to cook and I go on Pinterest all the time and I'm a straight man and I still do it and I don't care. And I killed a man when I was seven. And then I like to make roast and you're like, whoa, 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 go back. What? Like that. That's the whole skateboarding thing to me. It was like, <laughs> you know, all this, he has cancer. She wishes he was dead. She's deceitful. And the kids, they just love the dad. And then she wrecked her shit when she went skateboarding in front of a school. So anyway, later, and I'm like, wait, what? I wonder, I, and I kind of wonder, was it her kid's school? Because they must have gotten a lot of shit if everyone saw their mom eat it on a skateboard in front of their school. <laughs> Brian, is that your mom? <laughs> what? He goes to the window and like, oh, God, no, Mom. No, that's not my mom. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, 
No, that's not. I don't know her. What? No, it's not. What? That's like, not my mom. Kids like, yeah, dude, that's totally her. Look, look at her hair. No, no, you guys are wrong. <laughs> In your head, you're like, she better land this fucking flip, or I swear to God, I'm gonna be so fucking mortified. That <laughs> would he would be right in saying, "Mom, you're ruining my life," because that would be the ultimate truth. <laughs> I can see it's like a movie in my head where the kids thinking that, like, you better land this. It doesn't show what happened. It just shows all the kids at the window, and you hear all the kids go, "Ooh!" <laughs> <laughs> you see everyone's reaction as they back away. You know, kind of ooh, <laughs> cringe. And then, and then all of a sudden, you hear Morgan Freeman because he narrates everything. <laughs> He was like, and yeah, from that day on, <laughs> she wasn't right anymore. It's <laughs> exactly how it would go. We need to make a movie. Oh my god! <laughs> I like to say that. I like to say that she laid at that jump, but school is it not was. a fairy tale. <laughs> he never. He never it was not in the cards. He never did talk about what his mom did that day. <laughs> I love Shawshank. <laughs> God. Okay, so back to the cat. I could just, I just like you know, you kick it, you kick it, and you catch the skateboard. Oh, okay, I like, said she, cat, and you thought you were talking about kicking a cat. I'm no, like, what? No, you know how you kick it? No, I don't. <laughs> how you kick the skateboard up and catch it? Uh huh. Like she was like, "Hey, son," and like she would kick it, and like st- like stubbed her thumbs, like ah, fuck, kick <laughs> it up. And when she picked it up, she kicked it a little further, and she's like, "I got it." Mom, no. Okay, go ahead. Oh, fudge. (laughs) And you know, like, everybody's got the cool skateboards with the good trucks on it and the good wheels and stuff, but she got the one with, like, the clear plastic wheels Mm -hmm. that says rad, written in neon. (laughs) Oh, okay. You know, the kind of skateboard your uncle picks up at a gas station before he shows up at your birthday party? Or your mom when she goes and tries to pull some cool tricks in front of your school. Why did she do it? I don't know. Okay, back to the dead cat. All right, yes, back to the dead cat. I've never so, said this since before in my life. Back to the dead you cat. have now. Nice. This is always a new experience on Martinis and the Cobb. We always spit out sentences that we've never uttered before. Yeah. <laughs> it's never been a part of our everyday conversation. All right, so back to the child eating the ferret. <laughs> That'll probably be one of our sentences that we'll say in the future. Next episode, probably. <laughs> So, so yeah, so the cat died, and Mr. Knott also said that Asia's death prompted an odd discussion with Cheryl, <laughs> who claimed the cat had been poisoned by her neighbors. The Knotts and Cheryl spoke about antifreeze. Mrs. Knott said her husband told Cheryl that antifreeze was very sweet. Cheryl responded by oddly asking how much antifreeze would be needed to kill a person. Yeah, that's not a red flag. <clears throat> Mrs. Knott said her husband, who must be a fucking antifreeze aficionado told Cheryl that antifreeze could be mixed with orange juice or wine, and that if someone were to drink it without seeing the liquid, it wouldn't be noticed. So... This is for educational purposes only, guys. So it's a funny thing that this specific conversation happened, because Scott's friend Elsa testified that Cheryl once offered Scott some orange juice. Seems normal and courteous, right? But it's an odd thing for her to offer Scott, because after his cancer treatment, Scott couldn't eat anything acidic. Tomatoes, orange juice, anything with red sauce, anything acidic. He couldn't eat it because of his cancer treatment and his taste buds and his throat. It just would have tore him up. Wow. And 
He's lucky he had cancer. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> I'm not saying that. This is weird. But I'm thinking like, oh, he dodged a bullet. And I'm like, wait, no, he really didn't. Yeah, so they thought this was very weird. And uh, his friend Elsa would later testify, quote, One time when he had gone to Cheryl's, Cheryl had offered him a glass of orange juice. And he told me that he thought that was really strange because she was aware of the fact that he couldn't drink anything acidic, end quote. So, hmm. Yeah. That summer in 1995, Scott told Elsa, quote, I think I'm ready to have a girlfriend, end quote. Elsa denies setting up the two, but by the fall, Scott was involved with Elsa's friend, Sue Quast. Sue was a woman from Toronto. (laughs) You're adorable. (sighs) Sue was a woman from Toronto, that's the proper word, that Scott met at a wedding in August. They met at a wedding They met at a wedding in August. (laughs) They danced and talked, and that (laughs) night Scott asked for her phone number, and a long-distance relationship ensued. They talked on the phone, running up their phone bills, and visited each other every third weekend. Sue said, quote, We got along quite well. We had long conversations. He was a very intelligent man, very kind and easygoing, end quote. Scott told Sue he wanted to move on and start a new life. He talked about moving to the Yukon and asked her if she would consider going with him. Quote, He really felt he had a second chance at life, Sue said. You know, after overcoming the cancer and everything and felt like maybe he was ready to move on from Cheryl. Elsa said Scott was very happy about his new relationship with Sue. Quote, he called her his sunflower. It was a bright spot in his life, end quote. But surrounding that bright spot were the dark clouds of Cheryl Dell. I wonder if she got fucking jealous of the whole thing. Who? Cheryl? Cheryl. Probably. Yeah, fucking. She rode a fucking skateboard in front of a school and hurt herself. (laughs) I wouldn't put anything past her. Even though Scott wanted to move on, he couldn't get his mind off of his estranged wife. Quote, It was confusing, Sue testified. Our sexual relationship was there, and then it wasn't there. He said he had a difficult time because he had been with Cheryl for so many years that he had a hard time getting into a sexual relationship with someone else. End quote. Many of Scott and Sue's conversations were about Cheryl. Quote, She just sounded like a very eccentric sort of person, and he seems like a caregiver, always trying to help out, Sue said. He said that he cared for her deeply, she'd always be a friend, end quote. Elsa testified, quote, At the same time he was seeing Sue, he needed to be loyal to Cheryl, and he had a hard time not letting Cheryl manipulate him into doing what she needed him to do for her, end quote. That Thanksgiving, Scott took Sue to Connecticut to visit his family. Sue said it was fun, but Scott could not get Cheryl off of his mind. Quote, We were checking out some antique places, and Cheryl's name would be brought up again that she loved to do that. She'd had a conversation with Scott before we left, saying she would have liked to have been with him instead of him with me, end quote. They didn't speak much on the drive home. Quote, it seemed like he had a lot on his mind, Sue said. She ended up suggesting that they take some time apart. Quote, it seemed like Cheryl had him wrapped around her finger, Sue said. Whatever Cheryl wanted or if she needed money, if he had it, he'd give it to her. If she wanted to keep the kids longer and that wasn't the plan, that would happen. And he just seemed to do everything he possibly could, end quote. Ugh. Despite Sue wanting to pause the relationship, Scott wanted her to spend the Christmas holiday with him. She agreed, but Cheryl said that if Sue was coming to visit, that she would withhold the children from Scott, because she's just a dick like that. Sue was done with the shenanigans, and they called the relationship quits. Scott ended up going to Wilberforce to spend the holidays with Cheryl's family. 
He left on the 27th of December, borrowing a shovel from his father-in-law to shovel the snow from his roof, which is definitely not indicative of someone who was planning to commit suicide. Cheryl's sister Gail said, quote, He seemed the same as always. He seemed like he was looking better than he had, end quote. And now we finally are starting to get to some murder people. Scott visited Cheryl at her and Nancy's home on December 28th of 1995. Cheryl told Scott that she had had a dream that he would have spiritual visions after drinking some wine. She happened to have a bottle of Piat Dior. Does that sound right? Why are you asking me? Because you sell alcohol. I'll sell that. Sure. Piat Dior? I don't know. <laughs> okay, we're going to go with that. It's a bottle of wine, guys. <laughs> Which she then gave to him. He returned home but started calling Cheryl shortly thereafter. Gay came to visit this evening as well, but Cheryl practically ignored her, spending most of the night on the phone with Scott, a man that she wouldn't have given the time of day to previously. Gay left, but returned the next day, the 29th, for a visit. Scott was supposed to pick up the kids, but hadn't shown up. Cheryl informed Gay that she had spoken to Scott until 4 a.m. that morning and that Scott had gotten bad news. His doctor told him his cancer was back and that he only had a few days to live. Shocking. Wow. According to Gay, Cheryl also told her that Scott needed to, quote-unquote, purge his soul, and that he had confessed to affairs with other women and to have sexually abused his children. Gosh, she does not let up on this guy. No. And evidently, he's on his deathbed, and he's finally confessing all of this stuff to her. Right. Concerned, but not concerned enough to go herself, Cheryl asked Gay to go to Scott's house and check on him. When Gay got to his house, she found the door to the farmhouse open, the Christmas lights were on, and she heard the record player spinning. She was spooked and got a hold of two male friends to go in the house with her. Why she didn't just call the police then, I don't know. That's what they did. On his desk by the telephone was a 1.5 liter bottle of Piat Dior, half empty. That's a big one. Huh? That's a big one. Yeah. Half empty and a glass with an oily yellow-green film on it. There were also handwritten notes on the desk. They read in part, quote, What did you think was going to happen if I drank a bottle of wine listening to music we used to listen to? I'm going to think about you and me together. I feel like holding you close to me like never before. I feel like making love to you. I feel like all the bad stuff would go away. I can't help it. I don't want to want you. I don't want to be rejected. If we don't get back together, we maybe shouldn't see each other very much. You and I are stuck because of all the bad stuff that has happened to us the last three years. We need to make it go away. I was probably supposed to die, but my life was spared. I don't know why. Our lives are going by so fast. End quote. Gay found Scott's body upstairs on the floor of his son's room. He was clothed in only a blue sweater, curled into a fetal position, and his hands were a, quote, really strange blue color. End quote. Following Scott's death, Cheryl continued to claim that Scott's cancer had returned. She told police just hours after his body was found that he suspected the cancer had come back in early autumn and that doctors confirmed that a few weeks later. She said Scott claimed that there wasn't anything doctors could do. Cheryl wanted him to be cremated quickly without an autopsy. She claimed it had been Scott's wish to not have doctors poking around on him. What would he care? He's fucking dead. Yeah. I don't understand. I don't know why anyone cares what happens to their body after they die. Once you're dead, you're not there anymore. Yeah. But you don't care because you can't. (laughs) But Scott's oncologist and his relatives wanted an autopsy done, which infuriated Cheryl. But an autopsy was done. 
and coroner Dr. Henry T.G. stated the cause of death was cancer. See, here's the thing is his oncologist, his oncologist was probably like, I never fucking said that his shit came back. I never said anything of the sort, yet he's laying down there on a fucking table. He needs mm-hmm. to be cut open. Yeah, exactly. That's his, that, I mean, that's also his livelihood we're talking about. The doctor's livelihood right there. Well, in this corner, this Dr. Henry T.G. Was in love with Cheryl and said <laughs> that fucking it was cancer. Saying that it was cancer. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Seeing as Scott's cancer was in remission. And I certainly hope that, that doctor isn't still practicing because that's just completely fucking wrong. Someone else must have also thought that was crazy. So, a second autopsy was done and found no evidence of cancer in Scott's body. Which is completely different than saying he died from cancer. Kind of the opposite, really. Yeah. If you don't find it, he couldn't have died from it. Yeah. So, this time the cause of death was listed as antifreeze poisoning. And I read in one source that four ounces of antifreeze is lethal, but Scott had ingested over a pint, which is 16 ounces. That'll do it. So, four times what would kill you. But his death was ultimately declared a suicide. They thought he just drank it because he wanted to die. Well, life carried on for two more years with Scott's death officially ruled a suicide. Which is, to me, stupid because, um, I'm sorry, um, his cause of death was heart failure. (laughs) Every time. Every time somebody dies, (laughs) it's because of heart failure. Now, you could be stabbed... 700 times in your torso. That's a lot. But when you die, it's because your heart stopped. That's it your failed. cause of death. It, it, yeah. The, the heart failed you. It clocked out. <laughs> it failed you. It was heart failure. That is one point we stick to here on Martinis and the Cobb. It's always heart failure. When you die, it's heart failure. Sorry. I understand. He was shot. Second leading cause of death is tuberculosis. I understand he was shot in the face with a double barrel shotgun at point blank range. But last time I checked, his ticker quit ticking. And that's why he's not here anymore. <laughs> if he was, it'd be fucking amazing. <laughs> but at the end of the day, his heart stopped hearting. <laughs> stopped hearting? His heart quit hearting. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah. So, two years went by. Everyone... Hadn't really accepted the fact that he committed suicide. A lot of people didn't think that he had. But life continued on. And that changed after Nancy and Cheryl broke things off in March of 1997. And it was not an amicable breakup. Nancy sued Cheryl for the return of her property and for $6,000 she had allegedly loaned her. She also reported Cheryl to Child Services, claiming that Cheryl locked the children in rooms and drugged them with cold medicine. Hmm, sounds a little familiar. (laughs) The biggest blow came when she told police that Scott's death was a murder and that Cheryl was the one who killed him. You know, Scott could be used as like a turn of phrase, you know, as like an adverb or adjective or whatever the fuck you want to call it. Because I I went to public school, but my point is, is like she could have been like with Cheryl. Like, no, Cheryl's trying to Scott me. You hear this shit? (laughs) She's Scotting me right now. I didn't do anything. It can be used in various forms. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling I'm going to do this a lot as we do episodes. He, they got scotted. He got scotted. Poor Scott. <laughs> Sorry, Scott. You were a really good guy. I would play the fail horn, but I don't have the heart to do it. I, just, I feel bad for the guy. Yeah. There's a part of me that really, when they found his body on the floor and everything, I'm like, you know what? In a way, good. 
fuck, it's over for you, man. You yeah. don't want to have to fuck with Cheryl no more. You're done. You feel bad for the kids, though. Yeah, they love that guy. Yeah, so uh, so Nancy told the police that, um, no, he didn't commit suicide. Cheryl knocked him off. Nancy said Cheryl had talked at first about shooting Scott during hunting season and making it look like a hunting accident. Nancy told police, quote, she said she could shoot. Her father taught her how to shoot, end quote. Relying on her diaries, Gay would also later testify that on November 11th of 1995, Cheryl mentioned getting a firearm. Gay said, quote, Cheryl says she's not moving into the other house now until January. She wouldn't tell me what was going on, but did mention she wanted to get a gun, end quote. Nancy said Cheryl eventually chose to poison Scott with antifreeze, probably after the test run with the cat and the discussion with Mr. Knott, because uh, she gleaned a lot of information from that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like, he could testify, like, yeah, when Asia died, she asked about it, and she had a stenographer's notebook and a pencil asking me questions. I looked... He was writing very diligently. I looked over her shoulder. She didn't notice it at the time, but she had a diagram of a cat and arrows pointing to all these little organs and stuff and a bunch of question marks. (laughs) And inside the cat, she wrote, Scott. (laughs) Easily a hundred times because it was dark as shit and scary. <laughs> you ever seen the movie Seven? <laughs> Where like somebody's eyes are just scratched out of the fucking photo? Kind of like that. And actually... What's in the cat? Somebody just told us on Facebook not too long ago that they finally watched Seven. After I know. hearing us talk about it so much. It's such a good documentary. Uh, so... Cheryl went so far as to conceal her identity and call the Poison Control Center in Ottawa from a shopping mall payphone to determine how much antifreeze would be lethal. I bet that asshole didn't even do a creative. I bet she went from Cheryl to Carol. Like, she probably didn't put any effort into it. No, she did. (laughs) This allegation was later corroborated in court by Denise Bertrand, a former nurse with the Poison Center. Her name now is not Scott's killer. (laughs) She testified that on December 5th, 1995... She took a call from a Pembroke shopping mall payphone regarding antifreeze poisoning. The woman who called identified herself as Miss Balding and claimed her mentally disabled brother, Gerald, had just drank two cups of radiator antifreeze. The caller said that her brother was 28 years old and weighed 130 pounds, which just so happened to be the same weight Cheryl would later tell police that Scott weighed. The caller said she was five minutes away from Pembroke General Hospital. Miss Bertrand decided to check if a Miss Balding and her brother showed up at the hospital a while later, but she was told they never arrived. This would seem to be some highly damning circumstantial evidence, but the judge later ruled the nurse's testimony as inadmissible, stating it could have just been coincidence. Right. There's a lot of things this judge doesn't let into the trial that I don't agree with, but we'll get more into that. I, 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 in a way, I kind of respect it. It doesn't make it right. But I have seen so many judges who are like, I'll allow it. I'll allow it. I'll allow it. But you, but have, you watch yourself, counselor. But you have two completely independent witnesses going on record stating she pretended she was someone else and called poison control. And then the person that works at poison control says, yeah, I got this weird call about antifreeze poisoning from this woman who happened to be calling from a mall. Who the first witness said, yeah, she called him from a mall. What gets me is like. Okay, so if you work at the Poison Control Center, and it's like, oh, you know, he drank three cups of antifreeze. I'm like a stone's throw away from a hospital. What do I do? Um, 
go to the fucking hospital. Hang up and go to the fucking hospital. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like it's not that hard. Why? Like, I would. I would actually get aggravated at the caller. I'd be like, "Why are you calling me? Why are you not calling nine one one? What the fuck is wrong with you? Or one one one? Or two one one? Or whatever the fuck it is in Canada? I think it's nine one one on Canada too. Still though, it's like, why did you Canadians let us know? Oh, life hack. Even a phone that's not active will dial out nine one one. Okay, so something cool to do is. Go to Walmart, usually Walmart, and get one of those prepaid phones. Mm-hmm. Don't buy any minutes for it. Don't bother. Just keep it charged and keep it in your glove box. So if you're ever stranded, you're ever in a wreck or anything, get the phone turned on, 911. It will go through. And that's your one lifeline. So okay. worst case scenario, you have a phone in your car, cheap little flip phone, you know, and you can always reach to police or fire department or anybody. See, there you go, guys. Billy Snuggle Bunny Jones, looking out for y'all. I'm actually a good guy. <laughs> Well, in her videotape statement to police, Nancy said that she had bought the wine and antifreeze, though it's unclear if she actually knew what Cheryl's intention was. And she saw Cheryl mix the concoction up right in front of her. Quote, I watched her pour the antifreeze into the wine. I was freaking out and she kept telling me to shut up. I went along with it. End quote. Nancy claimed Cheryl told her to keep her mouth shut as Nancy could easily be seen as the jealous lover who poisoned Scott and would take the fall. Cheryl, what are you doing? Nothing, Nancy. Just making an ecto cooler. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> I'm gonna look that up. You keep going. I believe you. I, I just don't recall that drink myself. I see ecto cooler. Go ahead. All right. Nancy told police that Scott came to their house on the night of the 28th at Cheryl's request. Cheryl told him about the dream she had, where he would have some kind of spiritual vision after drinking wine, and she gave him the bottle of wine that she had spiked with the antifreeze. Quote. She said she was trying to help him on his spiritual journey, Nancy told police. She was loaning him books, and one of them was the Celestine Prophecy, and it was about important coincidences in your life. So she used that in this dialogue. This is an important coincidence. I had a dream. You're supposed to drink some wine and have visions, and I just happened to have a bottle of wine. End quote. (laughs) In the notes Scott wrote before he died, one line was, quote, Maybe that's the only way you can accept is through a spiritual vision, end quote. According to Nancy, after Scott left, Cheryl, quote, got out her witchcraft books and lit candles and was saying all these weird, I don't know what you call them, rituals or prayers or whatever. They don't make sense to me because that's not what I believe in, end quote. Nancy claims Scott began calling Cheryl almost hourly once he got home, just as Gay would describe, quote, He said he had just started drinking the wine. He was listening to their old music on the record player. He was doing a lot of thinking, Nancy said. Cheryl, quote, said she would keep the answering machine off or sit right by the phone all night until he just needed to stop talking, end quote. The woman that, you know, accused him of all these horrible things is going to sit there and talk to the man for hours on end. The Crown Prosecutor, Mr. Barnes, argued that Cheryl would have only stayed on the phone with Scott for the better part of nine hours if she had an ulterior motive. That motive was to monitor his drinking and keep him talking and preoccupied, unable to call 911. Nancy said she knew about Scott's final words to Cheryl. Quote, He was saying, You're here with me. I can see your angel spirit. The fuck does that mean? I don't know if this is part of these visions or if he was just making it up or if things were getting to him. (laughs) By drinking the wine with the antifreeze, like, I think he was losing his mind. End quote. He said, my name is Keith. Hold on. It's a Saturday Night Live uh, near-death experience. You guys got to see it. It's great. I'm Keith. Hold on. 
They wanted Nancy to be the star witness if the case went to trial. But that wouldn't happen because five months later, on August 19th of 1997, Nancy Fillmore died in a fire in her apartment. But we'll come back to that here in just a little bit. That was like a year after we started dating. Yeah. Almost exactly. Almost. In the meantime, Cheryl was re-interviewed about Scott's death two years prior. During the interview, Cheryl talked a lot about Scott's supposed ill health and death wish. Quote, He wanted to see what he could do in the time he had left to try and make up to me and the kids what we'd been through. And he did his best. He did his best. He was, like, really good. He lost a lot of weight because he lost his taste buds and his saliva glands died and stuff like that, too. And he was a man that weighed over 250 pounds and went down to 130 pounds, she said. Remember that earlier? Yep, there's that 130 pounds that she mentioned to the poison control nurse. Quote, Basically, he said he just wanted to stay home and he wanted to die on the farm. He swore me to secrecy from telling anyone or saying that he was out of remission, like he didn't want anyone to know, like family, friends, people in town, anybody. Because he didn't want to walk down the street and have everybody looking at him going, that guy could be dead tomorrow. The other person I think he told was Elsa Steenberg and also swore her to secrecy, end quote. Who would care? Honestly, like who would care? I wouldn't care if I had cancer and somebody saw me and was like, you could die tomorrow. I'd be like, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's the cancer. Yeah. Her whole story is just, well, here, I'll tell you right here. I mean, at that point, it's like, you know what? uh, I don't look for sympathy, but if I am on the verge of death and you sympathize, cool. I'm about to fucking die. I wouldn't care. Well, this is how stupid her whole story is. The prosecutor would later call this claim of Scott's cancer returning as poppycock in his closing statements which i think is the absolute best legal rebuttal to any claim poppycock poppycock and what's great is <laughs> that's recorded mm-hmm. the stenographer went like is that one word that's great. all one word poppycock in america we have a word for that horse shit <laughs> or balls yeah. i could do that in court ah balls seriously really yeah, so so he was stating that Scott was never told that he was sick again by any doctors. After speaking with numerous witnesses, Cheryl Dell was finally arrested and charged with the first-degree murder of her husband, Scott, in December of 1997. The trial didn't start until November of 2000 and took place in Pembroke, Ontario. It was decided amongst the parties that it would be tried before a judge without a jury. The Crown presented 50 witnesses and moved to include Nancy Fillmore's videotape statement as evidence, as by this time, she was dead. A voir dire was held, which is like a trial within a trial, to see if it would be admitted into the actual murder trial. Judge Chadwick, who was overseeing the trial, ruled that the videotapes were inadmissible, citing that Nancy and Cheryl had broken up just shortly before Nancy went to the police and could have had motive to fabricate her story you know, outside of all the other witnesses that are corroborating it. So basically the same statements that led police to reopen the case and ultimately brought Cheryl to trial would not be considered by the judge when making his decision. Seems absolutely stupid to me. Yeah. (laughs) And she should have been suspected from the very fucking beginning. Mm -hmm. If I was a cop and they were like, oh, Scott's dead. Was it the cancer? Oddly, no, sir. Um... A sh- about a pint's worth of antifreeze mixed in his wine. I'd be like, pick up Cheryl. Go pick her up. Yeah. I'll come with you. I'll drive. We'll stop at Burger King, but we're going to go get her. We're going to we're gonna get poutine. <laughs> I want to try poutine. I want to try poutine, too. <laughs> 
Cheryl's defense lawyer argued that there shouldn't even be a murder trial because Scott had committed suicide, right? He claimed that Scott's life was bleak. He had been dumped by Sue. He was unable to reconcile with his wife. He'd been on welfare for more than three years. He had no job prospects. And he had the possibility of a cancer recurrence hanging over his head. But Quote, people have killed themselves for less, he said. But he was also... A happy man who thought he had a second shot at life and, swear to God, adored Mm -hmm. his children. Yep, exactly. And he wanted to stay alive for his children. Exactly. Mr. Barnes, the Crown Attorney, said that Scott wasn't a quitter and asked the judge to look at how Scott had coped with his marital and cancer-related adversity. He also asked the judge to consider what he called, quote, post-offense conduct, end quote, which is Cheryl's behavior after Scott's death, which indicated her guilt. Mr. Barnes contended that Cheryl renewed her allegations against Scott when he was due to pick up the kids the day he died because she knew that he would not be alive to dispute her. Quote, Cheryl Dell knew at least in her heart that Scott Dell was dead, Mr. Barnes said. Also, Cheryl had told police that the last time she spoke with him on the phone that early morning that he was sick and retching, yet she refused to go check on him, instead sending Gay. When Gay urged her to go, Cheryl responded, quote, I can't cope, I can't cope, I can't cope, end quote. What's that supposed to mean? She can't cope, Billy. She just can't even. <laughs> she can't. She can't even. Can't even. Cheryl had already been told over the phone that Scott was dead before Gay got back to her house, and Gay testified that Cheryl, quote, seemed to have no reaction at all. She asked what he looked like, end quote. That was directly after... She went in for a high five and chest bump. <laughs> like, ah, oh, he's dead. Like, ah, oh. oh, woo. Oh, that sucks. Score. <laughs> Several more people took the stand against Cheryl. Cheryl's older daughter testified that in early January 1996, she heard Cheryl say to Nancy, quote, I knew exactly what Gay Doherty was going to find when she went out to the farm, end quote. <laughs> Cheryl, this is going to come maybe as a shock, probably not. Um, Scott is dead. <gasps> Was it the antifreeze? Cheryl, I mean, the wine? <laughs> Cheryl, I didn't say a fucking word about I mean, goddamn the antifreeze. I did not mention it at all. <laughs> oh, so it was the antifreeze? You keep saying antifreeze, Cheryl. <laughs> there were also two independent witnesses that told the judge that Cheryl had mentioned giving her husband poison wine. One was Larry McGee, a 38-year-old man who was hitting on Cheryl in July of 1997. He said he was being nosy and asked her if she was married. He told the court that Cheryl responded by saying that her husband was dead and that he had died from drinking antifreeze. He also said Cheryl was, quote, pretty hard up for money, end quote, and was upset that it was taking so long to get Scott's estate and farm that she was entitled to. Do you think during this time she took the role of the sad widow? How so? I don't know. Bitches be tripping. She's crazy. I don't think she would take the role of the sad widow. She already had a... Fucking lesbian lover. I guess. She's crazy, though. And I wouldn't put anything past her. Yeah. I mean, come on. I can't cope. I can't cope. I can't. Come on. Cheryl also allegedly confessed that she killed Scott to her bunkmate, Brandy Cameron, while housed in a 10-bed jail dormitory awaiting trial. Quote, It was phrased to me, I put antifreeze in his wine. End quote. Miss Cameron said. She told the court that Cheryl said her husband had cancer and, quote, she would just help him on his way, end quote. Miss Cameron noted that in jail, Cheryl was known as Angel, as an angel of death. 
And there was one more thing that Cheryl told Miss Cameron while in jail, that she had a, quote, boy who would do anything for her, whom she referred to as her, quote unquote, prince. This prince was a young man by the name of Ashley Ronald Brent Crawford, who goes by Brent, who was awaiting trial at this time, facing a first degree murder charge for the death of Nancy Fillmore, Cheryl's former lover that went to the cops. So the plot thickens. Bop, bop. <laughs> so we're going to take a little break from Scott's death here and do a little back and forth time traveling to talk about Nancy's death. As stated before, Nancy died in a fire in her apartment in August of 1997. Brent Crawford, the Prince of Cheryl's, was 16 at the time. And it's not entirely clear how Brent's name came across the police radar, but at some point in July of 1999, a handwritten note allegedly confessing to Nancy's murder, written by Brent, ended up in the hands of an undercover police officer. He was taken in for a taped interview and ended up confessing verbally to the crime. In the note, Brent wrote that he had a friend Jimmy the Lock to Nancy's apartment. Quote, I go to Nancy Fillmore's house and find her drunk and passed out on the floor of her living room with all of her candles lit. So instead of cutting her neck, I flipped over all the tables with the candles and leave. End quote. He also wrote that Cheryl had asked him to kill Nancy. Quote, I asked her, what's in it for me? She said a motorbike and $300. Fuck I told, yeah. I told her yes, and we went back to smoking more weed, end quote. He informed the police that there had been sexual encounters between the two of them as well. Both he and Cheryl had been charged with the first-degree murder of Nancy by the time Cheryl went to trial for Scott's murder. The videotaped interviews of Brent's alleged confession were ruled inadmissible in Cheryl's trial over Scott's death. Judge Chadwick ruled that since the confession was not given under oath and may have been given under what could have been a threat from police, as the judge described it, they couldn't be admitted. I can understand if it wasn't under oath. You kind of need to do that. That's one of those things. Well. And it gets me because in, in the court and all that stuff, the smallest fucking thing will just throw your shit out and it make all this shit just like totally not worth it. Well, the next best thing they had was Brent himself, who was called to testify. He claimed in court that he did know Cheryl and Nancy, but only as acquaintances. And then he denied that he had anything to do with the fire, which is completely different from what his note and verbal confession claimed. But another witness named Terry Lyon took the stand and described Brent as Killalo's teenage town loser. <laughs> and then testified that Cheryl told him she had been sleeping with 16-year-old Brent. She said she had him, quote, trained to do everything and anything. A town loser. Yep. He's, Teenage town loser. He smelled like cat piss and soup. And that's and a direct I know quote. <laughs> he never owned a cat. And I don't even know he had soup. Well, Cheryl never testified at her own trial. She was convicted on January 26, 2001 of the first degree murder of Scott Dell and sentenced to life imprisonment with no chance of parole for 25 years on February 2nd. Judge Chadwick laid out the reasons for his decision in part as follows. Quote, I find that from 1992 onward, Cheryl Dell expressed a hatred towards her husband and wished him dead. No shit. She wanted the exclusive custody of the children, sole occupation and possession of the farm, and wanted him out of her life forever. There is seldom a case where we hear such strong and consistent evidence about the character of a deceased person. Mr. Dell was very positive about his life and his love for his children. He wanted to live. He really was a good guy. He was. I am satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that Scott Dell did not commit suicide, but was murdered by poisoning. 
The evidence of Scott Dell's friends confirmed that he could not let Cheryl Dell go. He felt that he was her caregiver. As a result, she was able to manipulate him into doing anything she wanted. The only inference I can draw when I look at all of the evidence is that Cheryl Dell knew the wine Scott Dell was drinking was laced with antifreeze and that the effects of drinking the lethal cocktail would be death, end quote. And wouldn't, I don't know how it is in Canada, but wouldn't here in America, the fact that you asked if there's anybody that, any hitman, isn't well, that conspiracy? Well, I mean, it, but, but people could say stuff like that just in jest, just, you just oh, I'm so mad. So I know a hitman, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're actually hiring a hitman. No, it doesn't. But if this guy you're talking about, let, let's say, for instance, I met somebody like, oh, God, I just would love to go, you know, download Tor browser and fucking go on the deep web and find somebody who would fucking kill this guy. And then next thing you know, this guy is dead from a gunshot wound. No, two gunshot wounds to the chest and one to right underneath the bridge of his nose. Yeah, but I don't think any of... That would come back to me anyway as conspiracy to commit murder. But I don't think that any of that came out until it was reported to the police that she was the one that killed him. I'm not saying like what happened in court. I'm saying like if that came to court, that would constitute conspiracy to commit murder. Mm, I don't know if it would go that far. I don't know. Or does, you're that, not, or does that fall under freedom of speech? You, yeah, you're, you're, just you're not you actually it. seeking out someone to take out a hit. Okay. You're I'm just, just saying shit. I'm just wondering. Brent went to trial later that same year and recanted all of his confessions, even ones made to his parents via recorded phone lines. He allegedly told his mother that he killed Nancy while he was high because, quote, she was going to testify against someone in court. She was the star witness, end quote. He was found guilty of the murder of Nancy Fillmore and began serving his time in May of 2001. He was eligible for parole in 2009, but it must have been denied because he was still in prison in October of 2010 when he was granted temporary passes to leave and return to prison. They do that? They do in Canada. The Parole Board of Canada had granted him three 72-hour passes for administrative purposes. I don't know what that entails. Uh, All to be taken within a six-month period. He had an escort for his first pass, and he returned with no issue. During his second pass to a halfway house in Peterborough, he failed to return to the prison when his 72 hours was up. That's the problem with giving criminals passes. He had left on February 15th, 2011, and was due back on the 18th. A Canada-wide warrant was issued, and he was arrested and brought back to custody on the 21st, meaning he was unlawfully at large for three days, even though he was gone for like six but three of those days, he was okay to be gone. I'm confused. When you, in my understanding, you go to prison to pay a debt that the government has put on you. Mm-hmm. You're there to do your time for what you did or what you're convicted of. Oh no, they give you passes in Canada to like test the waters and shit. Man. Yeah. Yep. So uh, I'm not even coming down on Canada. In a way, it's kind of awesome, but in a way. Kind of scary. You shouldn't fucking do that. Yeah. Because of this. They might not come back. Well, I've not seen any further articles on him past this incident. The last was back when this happened in 2011. So I believe he is probably still incarcerated. And I'm sure that going on the lam didn't help him parole-wise. So he's probably still in prison. Even when he does his time, doesn't he have to answer to that too? Like, that's a charge right there, right? Like, Yeah, the article I read said that they would be looking into that if it would have any bearing on 
at a time or anything it like would, that. I, I would think it would have to be at a time. Here you would be given nope. a, another charge for Yeah, escape. exactly. Because that's, in a way, as far as crime goes, not the severity of it, but as far as crime goes, you know, you work in a prison. If a guy is in prison for murder, but he murders somebody in prison, he still has to finish that one and now go to trial for the other one. Yeah, well, he would be serving it and go to trial and it would be up to the judge if it would be concurrent or consecutive. Right, okay. That That's up to the judge. Cheryl ended up pleading in Nancy's case to a much lesser charge of counseling Brent to intimidate Nancy, not murder for hire, and it's unclear what her sentence was for that crime. But Cheryl is now around 63-ish and is eligible for parole in 2022, so just four years away. In the time she has been incarcerated, she has admitted to Scott's murder and claims to take responsibility. But then she turned around and filed for what is called a faint hope application, which basically means she applied for like an early parole in 2013. Now, faint hope, from what I've read, has since been abolished, but was still active at the time of her conviction, so she was able to apply like a grandfather clause. Yeah. Yeah. But she got denied in January of 2016. They were like, nope, you ain't getting out early. And the last documentation <laughs> I saw stated that she was imprisoned in Ontario's Grand Valley Institution for Women in Kitchener. And I'm fine with this crazy bitch staying there for a long while. Like, all right, we're not going to grant you. We're not going to grant you this fate hope thing. Okay. So that's not going to happen. All she would have to do is be like, I understand. Um, what about this? these bitching passes you give out <laughs> can i get one of those can i get a pass i haven't had poutine in god knows how long <laughs> and that's like a big canadian thing mm-hmm. so i bet you they'd be like oh you haven't had po- yeah yeah i'll drive you let's go i'm about to go now let's go 72 hours starts now guys count it <laughs> yeah so uh, so that's the story of the kind of witchy cheryl dell i'm i was hoping to find something that had a little more to do with you know, something witchcraft or ritual related. But when I started looking at this one, I was like, wow, that's a crazy story. Even though it's run kind of long, I understand. But I wanted to try and get it all in for you guys in one because I know you like it all in one episode rather than the two-parters. So thanks for sticking with us. Thanks for listening to the end. I'm going to say something. (laughs) Okay. Get ready. (laughs) He's going to say it, guys. Something. We're going to have a Halloween episode. Mm Mm-hmm. And I will find the topic. I already started research. Yeah, put a pin in it. You gonna research it? Yeah, what's that blank stare for? I'll do it. You wanna look it up? You gonna research it? Because I already it. started researching. I'll shit. do it. Will I'll you? Do, I'll do it. Look at this. You see this? My thumb and forefinger, index finger pressed together. Mm-hmm. You know what this is? What? A lot of people say it's the world's smallest violin. It's not. It's This is 100,000 compressed pounds of I give a shit. I'm going to do it. I don't give a shit. Okay. We're going to let Billy run the Halloween episode. Yeah. It'll be a Billy extravaganza. Yep. Do you know what you want to research? I do not. Okay. So he's going to go into it blind. He's going to find some shit on the internet as we're sitting in front of the microphone. What? No! And start reading some shit. I am not going to... <laughs> as he looks at his tablet <laughs> i ain't doing nothing shut up yeah guys so once again thanks for listening if you liked what you heard please get on itunes leave us that five star rating and review it's really the best and easiest way to help us we would really appreciate it 
And of course, check out the other great podcasts on the Murderly Network and show them some love. You can find all of us at murder.ly. If you would like to be a real baller and financially support the show, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash martinis and macabre make a pledge. Even just $1 gets you access to patron-only audio each month and a shout-out on the show. And just for a few dollars more, you can get some exclusive goodies. And once again, thank you to our patrons, Kate, Hunter, Cooper, Bridget, Molly, Sue, Holly, Stephen, Corey, Amy, Donald, Christy, and Karina. You awesome snuggle bunnies have our undying love. And even the patron that we lost this month, we still love you too. And you can now make a one-time donation in the amount of your choosing via our PayPal link on our website, martinisinthemacabre.com, near the bottom of the homepage. It's underneath the Patreon links and stuff right on that very first page of the website. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Martinis in the Macabre and on Twitter at Martini underscore Macabre. Be sure to join our fan page on Facebook as well at Friends Who Like Martinis in the Macabre. We love interacting with you guys. Feel free to post whatever you like on the pages and to share our posts. We seem to get more interaction from listeners on the fan page um, than we do on our main page, but we share stuff to both. So join both. Sharing our pages, posts, and tweets really helps to get the word out. So share away, especially right now because... Some new regulations on counting downloads just took effect this past week, and we seriously lost half of our numbers since joining the network. (laughs) Like, we were so close to reaching that 100,000 mark, and now we're back down to about 75,000. So any way that you can spread the word, get others to take a listen, would be so appreciated and very awesome of you guys. Try and get our numbers back up, because it was very disheartening to look at our numbers one day, and the next day they're, like, cut in half. <laughs> so, yeah. we would appreciate any sharing you can do. Try and get some other people to listen. That would be awesome. And, of course, visit our website, martinisinthemacabre.com, to learn a little bit about us. Not just for the, the Patreon and the PayPal links. You can listen to our complete episode catalog, and you can listen to all the songs created by Minimus Noah that we use at the end of each episode. And, of course, another one will be at the end of this one. And be sure to find his first official album release called Views on iTunes, Spotify, and many other music providers. There's also links and stuff to that on the music page. For any questions, comments, or topic suggestions, shoot us an email at martinisinthemacabre at gmail.com. Or you can use the contact page on the website. And uh, that's about it. You got something you want to add, Billy? I am right now. Right now. Right now. At this moment. Well, not right now. (laughs) Um. (laughs) You fucking... Fibber. Oh, ow. Ow, now I know the damage I've done. Uh-huh. Uh, it hurts. Um, I am becoming a patron. Really? Yeah. To whining about crime. Oh, really? I am. <laughs> I'm tapping it. He's tapping away. He's doing something on his phone. I can't see what it is. I just see fingers moving. Select. You know what? I do fucking agree to your terms of use. <laughs> I saw Bonnie saw uh, our shout out or heard our shout out, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> oh shit, Bonnie, hold on. This is gonna take some time. I updated my password for Facebook. I log in using Facebook. Uh-huh. I changed my password. Patron doesn't know that, so um, I'm gonna do it. He's gonna do it. I'm not gonna take up your guys' time, but I'm gonna become a Patreon. Patron. Patron. Patron of Patreon on fucking. Ugh, shut up, Erica. I love you. Shut up. You know what I'm talking about. Alright, guys. So, with that said, thank you for sticking with us for this extra long episode. And if you haven't listened to Ignorance Was Bliss, first of all, really, what the fuck are you doing? 
And secondly, <laughs> um, we're going to actually, we're, um, here soon we're going to be recording the intro that hopefully she'll play at some point. Yeah. So. We're going to record her intro and um, we're in talks to do another crossover episode soon. So mm-hmm. be on the lookout for that. Next month, I, I believe, yeah. Hopefully okay. hopefully next month. I'm not going to take anybody's time. Well, okay. since you're going to research the next episode, I, I have can spend my do. time on our crossover. I have work to do. Get to work, Billy. I'm going to play Spider-Man, but I know what I need to do. <laughs> That's what it's going to be for the next two weeks. I got to play Spider-Man. I, I can't. I love him. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks so much, you guys, for listening. And of course, stay safe, snuggle bunnies, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye.